2: and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is the 29th day of November. Trust you're having a good uh, day and a good week so far as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. We are here with you every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Let's see, what have we got coming up on the show tonight? We have Dr. John Duong is going to join us. Is that right? Do I, Memory serves me right? Possibly. Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, He will be. Today's Tuesday, right? No, today's Wednesday. He was with us last night. (laughs) See, that's when you try to do it from memory. It just doesn't work. And then people walk around and say, she had a great guest on last night. Who was it? And I don't remember the name. So now I'm, I'm going back in, in our time machine, as it were. All right. Um, let me stick to the notes, because that seems to be how I work more efficiently. Later on, we're going to be joined by Stephen Aden. Stephen is with Americans United for Life. There are some new statistics out from the Centers for Disease Control concerning the abortion rate in America, And I think you'll find the news alarming. I'll say no more than that. That'll be one of those, uh, what do they call it, cliffhangers? Yes. And we'll find out more about what Stephen has to say about this new trend coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. First off, let's talk about the floodgates. Boy, oh boy, did Harvey Weinstein apparently let the cat out of the bag. The list of accusations coming out of Hollywood now... Seems to grow day by day, and if you woke up this morning to word that Matt Lauer of the Today Show is no more, that is true. His name added to a list of who's who in entertainment and in news and in the political realm. And the question, I guess, that many of us are asking is, when's it all going to stop? Uh, Not just the accusations, and I suppose there can be some argument for due process We'll talk about that later on. But in the meanwhile, I guess the bigger question for millions of women who have been victims of predatory men, the question is a legitimate one. When will it stop? Has somehow this issue finally gotten the attention of America? Joining me now is author, speaker, licensed professional counselor, certified sex therapist. is the director of the John Townsend Leadership Program in both New York City and Dallas-Fort Worth. She is Nancy Houston. Nancy, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Wow. It just seems as if the, uh, the lid on this uh, can of worms has been opened up, and I don't imagine anyone... Thinking back to when it was just one or two names like uh, Harvey Weinstein could have imagined that now today, I mean, this is the this is a who's who list of the entertainment world, of the political world, um, of of the news world. What's going on here?
3: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Like the lid has come off, and I think for one of the first times. Socially and culturally, we are paying attention, and I think it's very positive. Um, Sadly, these things have been going on for, you know, centuries, decades, um, and sometimes we've ignored it, pretended uh, that it isn't happening. We have actually turned around and victimized some of the sexual survivors and— discouraged women and even men who are survivors to come forth and tell their stories. And I'm really grateful that like today, you know, we see Matt Lauer is fired from his job. I'm like, this is good. We need to have a strong cultural message that this type of work environment is not okay. And sexual harassment is not okay. So I think it's really a positive thing that's happening.
2: The irony, of course, is it's been almost seemingly forever, if you talk to women who have been on the receiving end of the abuse, that the male side of the equation has been living life as if they were all in an episode of Mad Men and not really paying any attention to uh, changing attitudes. Not that this was ever acceptable behavior, but I think the sense of frowning upon uh, how easily the line can be crossed today is increasing. I think maybe uh, maybe culturally as a society we're beginning to grow up a little bit. And I, I think what we're, we're, we're finding alarming is not only the the magnitude of what's happening here, but the kind of people in respectful high places to whom it's all happening. And, and, and maybe that's not even the right word because it's really not happening to them, is it? They're kind of reaping, no. I guess, their rewards, aren't they?
3: They really are, and and you know, I think it's so important that there that there are consequences, because in the past we've had way too much silence, um, we have blamed females, um, you know, you had alcohol in your breath, your skirt was too short, your smile was too friendly, and you know that's just been so unfair, and I think it's time for us to have public dialogues about what is okay and what isn't okay, and then we're going to do more than just frown upon it. There are going to be consequences.
2: Do we need to be cautious here to differentiate between uh, the error in judgment or the action at a potentially alcohol-fueled um, office Christmas party versus wanton, repeated Behavior that sometimes is even endorsed, and by that I mean it goes on under the watchful eye of companies and management and uh, corporations that uh, pay off lawsuits because, after all, this is their number one money-making star, and they don't want to put the money machine at risk here. Do do we – is there – a place to differentiate between the two? And I ask that question, Nancy, only because even some of the water cooler talk here around the office is, my goodness, now you're reaching the point where you almost have to walk around on eggshells for fear that if you compliment a woman or a man, for that matter, that you might likely then turn around and be the the target of accusations of sexual harassment or abuse.
3: You know, and I hate, I, I would hate to see that happen. Um, I'm hoping that as a society we can have some really mature conversations about this that, um, where we aren't, um, moving into man hating or demonizing every man because that's just not fair. It's not fair at all. There are a lot of really good men around. And, um, there are men who would never sexually harass a female. Now, they might want to open a door for her or say, you know, you look pretty today or I like your hair, you know, without being accused of being a sexual predator because that certainly isn't being a sexual predator. That's being a gentleman. And I think we've lost some of the art of that. Um, but you know, if we're, we're really thinking logically about this, I think we, we know the difference between a man giving a compliment or being polite versus grabbing and forcing and using his power or authority to take from another person what he wants.
2: What do you think has changed here? And and I ask that question because... Clearly, amongst reasoned people, I think we could readily agree that the behavior that's been attributed to this growing laundry list of celebrities uh, at all... Uh, is is extremely over the top, inappropriate behavior. There's probably very little debate of the, of the the rightness or the wrongness of any of this. Yeah. And yet, what seems to have changed is, uh, for example, when the early accusations came out against Bill Cosby, a lot of people, no, nah, can't, no, she's exaggerating, she's in it, she's trying to make a name for herself, she's in it for the money, very dismissive. And if we turn back the clock 20 years. We had a guy who twice successfully ran and won the presidency with major accusations that were all forefront, and quite frankly, some of the voices that we're hearing today that are most critical of Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose, Garrison Keillor, Bill O'Reilly, Cosby, Matt Lauer now, were the same voices that were dismissive of the very women who were Ringing the bell to get our attention back in the 1990s, and I'm speaking of people like Paula Jones and Kathleen Wiley and Monica Lewinsky and Juanita Broderick, who were vilified in the press for daring to even suggest that something like uh, uh, untoward nature would have taken place. So I'm, I'm curious, Nancy, from your perspective, what has changed where— We would agree that this behavior is unacceptable, but all of a sudden now, the level of disdain that it's receiving in the general media has shifted dramatically from what it was even 20 years ago.
3: It is interesting, isn't it? We are definitely seeing the pendulum swing, and again, I'm so grateful for that. I just can't imagine what happened to some of these women, um, like the women you mentioned, and how... They have been tried in this public court and were vilified. And how horrible to be sexually victimized and then to be re-victimized over and over and over. So I I think there's more education. um, We are developing a language for sexual abuse and sexual harassment, for date rape. We are starting to have a language to express what is happening to people. And it's becoming more of a common language for us to talk about where, you know, 20 years ago, it's like, oh, we don't talk about that. You know, <laughs> um, oh, oh, nobody talks about things like that. You know, things like that happen to you. You just keep that silent and shame on you for talking about it. And now we're realizing the value of telling our stories and the necessity of it and how shame and silence Have only re-traumatized the survivors over and over and over again and that we honestly we have a responsibility to help them heal and not re-traumatize them so this I think this is really positive I think our changes are positive and necessary and timely and there seems to be some sort of force behind all this that is bringing it to light it's kind of like the darkness is coming to the light and how appropriate is that
2: Nancy Houston with us today. Nancy is an author, a speaker, licensed professional counselor, and certified sex therapist. She's the director of the John Townsend Leadership Program in both New York and Dallas. We're going to continue the conversation. When we come back, we'll talk about holding men and women accountable as this edition of Lifeline continues. 517, let's get an update on traffic. Michael Bennett standing by. What a guy he is in the KFAX Traffic Center. Give us the latest on your Wednesday ride home. Michael And back to our conversation tonight with us, author, speaker, nationally licensed professional counselor and certified sex therapist, Nancy Houston with us tonight. She is the director of the John Townsend Leadership Program in New York City and Dallas Fort Worth. We're talking not just singularly of the topic related to the revelations concerning Matt Lauer and his firing from the Today Show this morning, but this growing list, this growing trend over the last month, month and a half so, and certainly... Certainly a lot of good can come from this. The issue that you sort of alluded to, I think, before the break, Nancy, is the need to, number one, hold men more accountable. But I want to change up the topic and and maybe get myself in a little bit of trouble here. Does that level of accountability cross the lines to hold women more accountable? And, And here's why I pose that question. We have heard these accusations come forward in the case of Harvey Weinstein the list is now 83 women going back bill cosby 60 separate women have lodged complaints and after a while you have to wonder was there nobody in this list through all these years that was willing to speak up and say something to put a stop to it and and would that list of victims be half that size a third that size might it be a victim of only one? Had somebody taken the time to speak up sooner?
3: Well, hopefully. Um, I think we have to make it um, safer for victims to speak up. I, I think we have to, you know, really respect what they're t- saying to us, listen, be empathic. Um, you know, only 2% of victims of a sexual crime are false reports so we need to we need to mostly believe what these people are saying and realize that it's terrifying because what happens is a perpetrator doesn't start as a perpetrator typically there's someone who has come across as warm and friendly and um, maybe charming and delightful and so what happens to the survivor's brain is their brain calms down and thinks oh I'm with this very pleasant person you know I work with this wonderful person and I'm safe around this person and then suddenly their behavior will change and the person is no longer safe but their brain is still thinking Ah, oh, this is a safe person did this really just happen to me oh my goodness, how could I be sexually assaulted by this very powerful person who I know does good things publicly? And we have to remember that a lot of times people, they compartmentalize their sexual lives, and we can see them do a lot of good things in in public office. Um, Maybe they're serving others. Uh, Maybe they're a pastor of a church or a beloved coach or an elder of a church and you know, or a state senator, and we think, oh, this is a wonderful person. But we have to remember that people often compartmentalize their sexual behaviors. And I think part of the reason is is because, you know, starting with our children, we parents oftentimes don't have enough conversations with our children. Um, We don't give the the body parts medical names and proper names. And so we teach our kids at really young ages that this is not a topic that we talk about. This is a taboo topic. And um, so I think if we're going to shift the tide, we're going to have to have a lot more conversations like you and I are having right now.
2: Clearly, then, this is only the beginning of this process, so to speak. And it it has to change what our clear deep-rooted um, habits, uh, you know, I mean, some of this, I mean, as, as revolting as some of the ass- accusations are, you, you begin to get the feeling in certain circles, well, this is just considered to be normative. I mean, uh, you, you listen to some of the accusations concerning Harvey Weinstein. I said, well, this went on for years. Everybody knew about it. Everybody in Hollywood knew to oh thought, my goodness, you all knew about it. And it seemed as if, well, that silence is accepting of all of this. And yet, how many women had to be abused? 83 before finally somebody okay. had the courage to speak up and say enough is enough the buck stops here the other troubling thing is we often hear people say well I was concerned about my career yeah. do we yeah. do we have to be willing I mean I I realize there's a mixed bag here and say well something has happened that I didn't invite that now has been perpetrated toward me and in order to stop it or to get it addressed I I now have to put everything at risk myself, realizing that there's maybe a 50-50 chance or less that I might even be believed, and if I get blacklisted from Hollywood or whatever, that I'm going to pay a huger price. I mean, how do you overcome that?
3: Mm. It's a lot to be overcome because we have to understand what trauma, what sexual trauma does to a person's brain. Um, You know, first of all, there's tremendous amount of shock. And, like, did this even really happen to me? How could this have happened? And then we know that survivors oftentimes blame themselves. It's like, oh, if I if I just hadn't have went into his office, which is a completely innocent act, but the victim tends to blame themselves. Their, their brain is trying to find some reason as to why this happened. And then their brain is like, this is too much, let's just bury it and go into denial. And let's try to forget this ever happened. And so the brain tries to minimize it, tries to deny it, um, tries to avoid thinking about it, feeling it. But what we know is oftentimes these survivors end up with what we call post-traumatic stress disorder from a sexual assault and they have nightmares. There might be sleeping disorders, eating disorders, relational difficulties, um, depression. I mean, a sexual assault affects way more than just a, a body. It affects your brain, it affects your relationships. This goes deep, and, and I think that's been part of the problem is we, like you said, Craig, we've treated so much of this so casually. And, you know, so many of the movies and TV shows just treat sex like it's just such a casual topic. And we accept sexual violence when we all need to be going, no, that is not normal. And that is not okay. And we need to be more attuned to how desensitized we all are to sexual violence. And how we have just gone, oh, well, you know, he's been doing that forever. We all need to be going, whoa, That is not acceptable anymore, that a powerful person has used his money and authority to traumatize so many people.
2: There is a, um, a classic scene out of the film Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart where uh, the the Germans are coming in looking for an excuse to shut down Rick's Cafe. And so um, they demand that the prefect of police come up with an excuse in order to close down the cafe. And the prefect of police, who has been frequenting this establishment for years and years, comes in and says that he's immediately closing down and ordering all of his officers to throw everybody out of the cafe. And the owner, Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, comes up and says, on what grounds are you closing me down? And he says, I'm Shocked, shocked to find out that there's gambling taking a place in this establishment. And just as he delivers that line, someone who walks up to him and says, Here, you're winning, sir. There is the degree of the disingenuousness of Hollywood. Where we're hearing the level of shock over the behavior of uh, Harvey Weinstein. And, and I mean, there's a list of 40 or 50 Hollywood uh, producers and uh, movie moguls that are, that are all been accused of this behavior. And yet, it's the same Hollywood that for 40 years people like me have been saying, there's too much violence. We are objectifying women. Everything is turned into a uh, a pornographic film. We have violence in video games, and then we wonder why people go out in the street and shoot each other. Uh, sex and violence reigns supreme in film, television, the Internet. I mean, you name it, our society is saturated with all of this. And then we come back and we're shocked, shocked at the idea that women are being abused. It seems to me that we've kind of, we've kind of watered and nurtured this, this seed that we've planted to grow into this ugly monster, haven't
3: we? Oh, absolutely. And we have so desensitized our entire culture by doing so and by normalizing behaviors and buying our kids video games that are full of violence. And we have just normalized all of it, and there's nothing normal about any of it.
2: So do you agree with me then, Nancy, when I say it's not just encouraging women to do the right thing and be accountable? Holding men accountable for doing the right thing, but that—that's the starting point. That we also have to have to hold ourselves as society and, at whole accountable, and say we need to rethink what we see and embrace as acceptable when it comes to music, entertainment, film, video games, television, the internet—all of it.
3: I really do, and I'm I'm hoping that because of what is happening in Hollywood. That it will be a wake- I don't know if it will be, but I'm hoping it will be a huge wake-up call to Hollywood that there needs to be some accountability there.
2: Well, I certainly hope so, because you've got, you know, 12- and 14-year-old boys between video games, television, entertainment, and the Internet that grow up with the belief that women are there to be objectified and used for their pleasure, and then when 10 years after that they act out on that behavior, then we're shocked that they're doing it and don't understand what could have ever driven this uh, child to act this way, when in reality we've been training them, teaching them, and coaching them for years.
3: We have. And when you think about it, children nowadays have access to iPads and phones, and really they can pull their phone out of their back pocket and watch porn.
2: I, you know, I've, I've sometimes on this program uh, joked, Nancy, about the fact that 40 years ago, if you wanted to get access to certain CD films, you had to wear a trench coat and go into the bad mm-hmm. part of town at the end of the street, you know, the part that nobody yeah. ever wandered out to except hobos, drunks, and whatnot, and you could go to a dirty little place with a, with a door that had no name above it to go in and get access to your pornography. And fast forward 40 years later, now today, if you want it, uh, simply go browsing for something as innocent as a recipe on the internet, and you don't have to go out to it. It comes and finds you.
3: Absolutely. The accessibility has done so much damage to the prefrontal cortex of people's brains. And when you watch a, uh, a diet of pornography, it damages the relational center of your brain. It damages the courting center of your brain, and it certainly does teach you to objectify Sexuality and human beings and children and women. And, and I think everybody, even, even those who are really hooked into porn, I'm like, it's, it's like they are victims of this dragon that has sort of taken over our culture. And it's really time for us to say, enough. This, our children are being educated on pornography. And, you know, this is dangerous.
2: And, and sadly, a lot of these men, w- without a filter, are acting out on what they've been trained and watched and uh desensitized by, and we as the culture have spent far too long just looking the other way. Nancy Houston. Nancy, I appreciate the time. I I would imagine we're going to get an opportunity to talk to you again, because I think this is going to be an ongoing story, and as well it should be. Our thanks to Nancy Houston, author, speaker, licensed professional counselor, and certified sex therapist, director of the John Townsend Leadership Program in New York City and Dallas-Fort Worth. Nancy, thanks again for the time. And the education, tough subject. 535, let's move on to traffic that can equally be challenging on days like this. Let's see what's going on out there. On this Wednesday, Michael Bennett has the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All right, welcome back to the conversation. We're here at 538 on your Wednesday edition of Lifeline. There is some new research out from the Centers for Disease Control that you might find quite alarming. It deals with where we stand today in 2017, what is that, 44 years after the Supreme Court decided that an obscure passage in the Constitution dealing with privacy somehow would lead to the codification of abortion on demand in our country in the now infamous 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. Well, where do we stand today in the ensuing 44 years when it comes to abortion rates? Stephen Edden joins us, Chief Legal Officer with Americans United for Life. Stephen, thanks for being with us today. And uh, I guess in some respects, this latest CDC report is pretty shocking.
4: Well, it's shocking, Craig, how many total abortions are done in America. This is a report from the Centers for Disease Control, which is tasked with tracking all manner of health data, including abortions and it lags a bit. Uh, this is the 2014 data for abortions, and the total is 652,639 human lives lost. Um, the silver lining is that that number is decreasing, uh, decreased by another 2% in 2014, uh, and it's decreased by about that figure every year, really for the last 20 years, with a, with a, a couple of exceptions, uh, 2007, 2008. So that uh, roughly from 1992 to the present, the abortion rate in America has dropped about 40 percent. So we're making progress in saving lives, but the CDC data, which just came out last week, confirms that there's still a long way to go.
2: How accurate do you think, and I I want to be cautious here, I don't want listeners to think I'm raining on the parade here, au contraire, Um, I'm as pro-life as they come, and yet I have to wonder, given the fact that we are relying upon the abortion providers to submit the information to the CDC to create these reports, how accurate do you think it is, and would there be any benefit for organizations like Planned Parenthood to underreport any of this information?
4: Well, it is rough. Uh, the CDC data is notoriously sketchy. The main reason for that is that not all states report data to the CDC. Uh, the, uh, California, for example, New Hampshire, Maryland, sat this year out, as they have customarily. Even uh, of one red state, Louisiana, doesn't always report. Um, but what the CDC data shows is the same trend that you get. From other sources so for example we know from tracking abortion clinics across the country that uh, the number of abortion clinics has dropped uh, really dramatically uh, over the last 20 years Um, about 20 years ago uh, there were approximately 2,000 abortion facilities in the United States now that number is down to about just over 700 or uh, just over 500, depending on how you count them. 700 if you include single doctor's offices that dispense abortion pills. Just over 500 if you're talking about standalone abortion clinics. Uh, so the fact is that the more uh, that abortion facilities close because they can't comply with basic health and safety standards, uh, the less available it is uh, to uh, mothers and thankfully fewer of them are harmed and fewer babies are killed. Uh, so there, there are other data, other methods of watching uh, this uh, abortion rate. Uh, and we know from them that as a, as a rough measure, uh, the CDC uh, data uh, can be relied on but're you 're pointing, that, you're, course, you're uh, pointing
2: uh, stephen to to uh, things such as you know regulatory controls, things of that sort that would suggest that it is from a regulatory standpoint uh, a hostile environment for some of these centers to operate on when in fact, as we 've learned from uh, people like uh, dr. Gauchel, and I hate to even re- refer to him as a doctor but that the the amount of oversight that takes place quite frankly in this industry is probably significantly less than that of the cosmetics industry. That said, is there a silver lining in all of this that perhaps in part this reduction that we've seen? And you're talking about levels. I mean, put this in perspective. We're under a million um, in 2014, for example, uh, the numbers reported were under a million. That's the first time since 1975, and abortion was only legalized in 73. I mean, that, that's remarkable. Can pro-life individuals take some uh, sense of, of uh, pride, I guess we'll call it, in the idea that maybe the message is also getting through, that the advent of, of things like sonograms to demonstrate to a woman that it's not just a blob of tissue but a real baby with ten little fingers and ten little toes, you think any of that is having a, a downward pressure on these abortion numbers as well? Sure it is, Craig.
4: And here's the big takeaway. Uh, experts who study abortion, these are non-pro-life uh, people, in ivory towers that study it say that what's really dropped is the demand. It's just not as much in demand as it used to be. That's women deciding not to have them. Abortion is still and should be a dirty word in America. Uh, In fact, this abortion rate, according to the CDC data, is the lowest it has been in America since 1972, the year before Roe versus Wade. So there was a big spike up to the late 80s and then A dramatic drop since then. Uh, it is, uh, I would argue that it is as if the pro life movement has made so much progress in making abortion unthinkable that, uh, almost as if Roe versus Wade never happened. So you get before 1973 and 1972, abortion was legal in California, in New York, a couple of other states. Uh, so you get, you get a rate that was we had the year before abortion on demand became the law of the, uh, of the land, and that is tremendous progress. I credit several things, the 40 Days for Life movement of prayer and witnessing in front of abortion facilities. I credit the good health and safety regulations and insist that abortionists adhere to the same health and safety standards as other outpatient uh, surgical practitioners. By and large, they can't do that. Uh, And um, I credit the pregnancy resource centers, uh, which are now outnumber They outnumber abortion facilities five to one across America. Wow. There's a lot of progress, a lot of uh, good things happening, and, uh, you know, pro life people, people of faith need to keep it up.
2: So, for a lot of pro life people that got into the fight, Gosh, I'm going back more than 20 years now. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the movements that we saw, like Operation Rescue, Randall Terry, a lot of street protests, things of this sort, actively engaging people in front of clinics, things of that sort. And it seems as if we went on two years, five years, ten years and didn't see much progress, kind of felt like, uh, you know, while our cause was a viable and worthy one, we weren't really getting anywhere. What you're suggesting then, Stephen, is, in fact, a lot of that has laid the groundwork to bring us to where we're at today. Is that actually
4: No, I think that's precisely right. Even in the courts, Roe versus Wade is a shadow of its former self. Uh, All over the country, you've got laws that are passed that aren't challenged by Planned Parenthood uh, and uh, that remain on the books. Uh, Since 2010, hundreds of new pro life laws have been passed. Only a fraction of those have been challenged in court. Uh, So we're making progress, and uh, American Genetic for Life is working toward a time when even Roe versus Wade will be reversed by the Supreme Court and the issue will be returned to the states where a large number of them uh, will make uh, abortion on demand illegal uh, once again and uh, many, many thousands of lives will be saved.
2: These statistics that you are sharing tonight, Stephen, from the Centers for Disease Control, and a lot of this is also, by the way, being backed up by the Guttmacher Institute, which um, I I don't know precisely today, maybe Stephen can answer this for us when we come back from the break, but at one time... And since its founding, the Guttmacher Institute was essentially the data and research arm of Planned Parenthood. So they did have access to all the legitimate inside numbers, at least as it relates to Planned Parenthood. That could give you a pretty accurate picture of what was going on. This also raises some interesting questions about perhaps explaining some of the alarming trends that we've seen of late um, in relationship to matters of freedom of speech, And one California law that's uh, now going to be discussed by the Supreme Court shortly in relationship to whether or not pro-life clinics should be helping to educate women on the availability of abortion, as if how somehow any woman who's walked into a pro-life clinic did not know that abortion was available to her. Talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. We're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Aiden. Stephen is the chief legal officer with Americans United for Life. Information, by the way, about their fine organization on the web at A-U-L. That's A-U-L dot O-R-G. A timeout back with more right after this. Well, let's head first over to the KFAX Traffic Center. To get gets you an update on this Wednesday ride home with Michael
1: Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: It was mid-month, 16th, 17th, as memory serves me, when the Supreme Court made the decision to hear a case challenging a California law requiring pro-life clinics to provide patients with information about abortion options. And, of course, there have been lawsuits. We've talked to some of the people behind it, including our buddy Brad Dacus with Pacific Justice Institute, and others that said, hold on, I mean, this is a violation of multiple First Amendment rights. And I have to wonder, uh, Stephen Aden, who, uh, for listeners just jumping by, is the chief legal officer with Americans United for Life. Um, Stephen, do you think maybe some of this can be explained by this downward trend of the abortion numbers? I mean, it, it, it felt so out of place, I mean beyond the the obvious constitutional issues. It felt so odd that Planned Parenthood, who was the, the driving force behind the measure here in California, would be insisting that pro-life centers post public information so that women know where and how they can get abortions as if somehow this has been a secret. And I never could understand, what, what's the, other than just trying to harass pro-life clinics, what's, the, what's the, the motivation here? And I wonder if some of these statistics help us better understand the motivation. Business is down. Is that accurate? Business is down,
4: Craig. In fact, a five-clinic chain in Northern California closed its doors a few years ago, and the owner at the time said in the press, lack of demand huh. is the reason. And so they're getting desperate. Uh, they think, uh, I think they understand that, um, th- and when you give women options and real choices, uh, they tend to choose life. Um, so that's part of what's going on. Uh, NARAL and, uh, the, uh, Center for Reproductive Rights, other organizations like Planned Parenthood are bent on forcing, uh, pregnancy centers across the country to, put up this kind of signage and, in effect, give them, give over their customers, their clientele, the women they minister to, to the abortion industry. So in California, the law says that they have to put, not only on their wall, but also in all of their marketing material, digital and hard copy, the announcement that the state of California will provide a low-cost or free abortion through the medical cal system uh, to women, as if As you said, they don't already know that. Um, The trouble is that that violates the First Amendment rights of free speech of uh, these pregnancy centers, uh, their staff, their counselors, Uh, and that's why this case is in the Supreme Court. Um, Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom uh, represent the pregnancy centers in California, and uh, we uh, at American Journal for Life, along with a number of other groups, will file friend-of-the-court briefs pointing out that no one can be forced by the government to carry and say a message that the government wants them to say. You can't do it. And the Supreme Court said many years ago that you couldn't be forced to put live free or die on your license plate by the state of New Hampshire. Uh, this is a very similar case. You can't be forced as a pro-life pregnancy center to put on your wall the state will pay for your abortion. We expect that the Supreme Court of the United States will reaffirm that important constitutional principle
2: once again. And you know, the irony is, of course, uh, with tongue firmly planted in cheek at the time when the governor first signed this into law, or as it was being discussed, rather, prior to the bill's passage, uh, we thought, well, isn't this About time that here in California, we have a reputation for being the state that's kind of trendsetters. And, you know, some would argue that the birth of the free speech movement, after all, took place right here in Berkeley, California, though that's changed (laughs) of recent days. And we thought, well, this is great. Now they're really at least putting up. And putting their money where their mouth is. They always talk about being pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice. Well, choice, by the very definition, suggests more than one option. And so now if they're going to force abortion clinics across the state to post signs that say, you know, you don't have to put your child up for an abortion, you can actually carry the child to turn. There are organizations that will stand with you that will help you. You can also Mm -hmm. keep your child and make it available to a needy couple that would like to adopt your baby. This is great that the state is going to do this. Of course, then we found out that no, it was strictly one-sided. So um, oh, yeah. by rights, it needs to go to the Supreme Court so that no other state gets the bright idea later on to try and try a, a, a stunt like this.
4: No, that's right. And California is a state that brought you a law that prohibits the posting of an actress's age on the Internet. You shall consider the source. But the point is that uh, in the pro-life movement, there are many many uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in California and elsewhere who are fighting for life at pregnancy centers in the state houses and elsewhere. And that's why Americans United for Life is working in state legislatures across the country with the pro-life movement, uh, with pregnancy centers. Uh, As we see these numbers driven down, as the CDC report shows, uh, we're thankful uh, that uh, lives are being saved and uh, our efforts are redoubled.
2: And ultimately, then, Stephen, do you see the trend word, the, the trend downward in these numbers is kind of the cumulative total, um, the cumulative outcome of the efforts that have been applied to this topic by pro-life people for the past 25, 30 years?
4: It is a cumulative effort. It is a team effort. Uh, it involves uh, pro-life legislators, pregnancy centers, uh, sidewalk counselors, um, churches, uh, caring individuals, uh, adopting families, um, it's changing culture, uh, I think is what we're seeing. I'm hopeful that we're returning to a pro-life culture, recognizing that life in the womb is human life. It's a very simple principle. All human lives deserve protection once you recognize whatever ultrasound shows that life in the womb is human life there's no other choice to make but to choose life
2: and uh, hopefully in the process uh, afford ourselves the opportunity to uh Save our culture and our society while we're still able to. Our thanks to Stephen Aden, Chief Legal Officer with Americans United for Life. Information again on the web at aul.org. That's aul.org. Six o'clock. Wait, wait, wait for it. Wait. It, 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 uh, now. There you go. Six o'clock exactly. So rarely do I get to say that, because so rarely am I on time. <laughs> Let's get a look at what's happening on your ride home with Michael Bennett, who's probably as shocked as everyone else is it's 6 o'clock. There you go. Watch that car ahead. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. What's going on?